please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're continuing our way through the text of 1 Timothy this morning. We had a wonderful, wonderful Easter worship service, and uh, it was a rich time to reflect and, and be reminded of what Christ did for us on the cross. But as is our custom, we're working our way through the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in 1 Timothy this morning. Uh, we started here back in August, and we have now worked our way to the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, this Sunday and uh, the next Sunday, we're going to be looking at this passage. Uh, we're going to look at the first verse today, and then next week we're going to look at verses 2 to, to 5, just to remind you where we're at, where we're coming from. Paul has made this statement. He said, you know, I want to come to you soon, Timothy, in Ephesus, but if I'm delayed, uh, I'm writing this letter to you in order that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, in the church. And so he writes that letter, he writes that in his letter here at the tail end of chapter 3, and he, he goes on to say, great we confess is the mystery of godliness. And he goes on to talk about Jesus, and, and it's this hymn that would have been sung in the early church. And that's how he finishes off chapter 3. And then he comes here in chapter 4, and he begins to warn us about individuals who drift away from Christ. He talks about what it is that leads them to drift away, and he specifically begins to talk about different teachings, different focuses, different emphases that are not rooted in the gospel. So we're going to spend this morning looking at verse 1, talking about that idea generally, and then next week we're going to look at the next couple of verses and talk about this idea specifically. Uh, but before we jump in, as is our custom, I'd like us to just pause for a moment and pray and ask God to open our eyes to understand what it is that he's trying to say to us here in this particular text. We'll ask for his help, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump in and we'll get to work. So would you please just bow with me. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you, Lord, for sending your spirit to move in the heart of Paul, to put pen, ink to paper, parchment, in order to speak to us even today, Lord. We know that all of Scripture is breathed out by you, that you are the author of this word. And we thank you for speaking not only to Timothy as he's seeking to pastor the church in Ephesus, but speaking through that time and that place, that historical context to churches everywhere across all time. Father, thank you for speaking. Your people are gathered now to hear from you. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would be illuminated by the same spirit that wrote it that you would open our minds to understand, that you would give us the eyes of our hearts to see and to behold from your word great and wonderful things. We pray, God, that you'd warn us this morning about the danger of drifting. Show us how not to drift, and show us, Lord, what it is we are to focus on. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This past summer, uh, Shanti and I packed up our tent trailer, and we went on a road trip down the west coast of the states. We went all the way down to Oregon. We 
The furthest point south that we reached was Madras, Oregon, where we took a couple of days to observe the solar eclipse. You'll recall that this last year was one of those rare events in history where the moon passed between the sun and the earth. And here in Kamloops, there was a 93 or 94% eclipse. But in Madras, it was a total blackout, and we went down to observe that. Shanti's father, my father-in-law, he has one of these massive telescopes, Astronomy is a a hobby of his, and so he has one of these telescopes that is about 16 inches wide, and it's about five and a half feet in length. It weighs about about 200 pounds fully assembled, and it sits on a base. You have to put it on a completely, perfectly level patch of ground, and it sits on a base that has a computer attached to it where you can punch in exactly what it is you're, you're wanting to look at. You can enter in what is referred to as solar coordinates, and the scope will immediately adjust based on its GPS positioning to focus at the right point in the sky so you can see what it is that you you punch into this computer. And so we, on a couple of nights that I was there, we had the opportunity to go out. It was was foggy for some of the evenings, but there was one night in particular in which it was just a crystal clear sky. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, and you could see the whole expanse of the stars above. And we went out, and we set up this telescope, and uh, he he asked me if I wanted to look at a couple of different things, and we were going to look at Jupiter. We're going to see if we could just barely look as far out as as Pluto, which is just way, way out there. I'm not going to get into all the specifics, but it's almost impossible to see. You have to have a super powerful telescope. And so we were looking at a couple of different things, and he was showing me some stuff. And uh, we were looking, I was looking through the scope. The way that it works is you've got this giant tube like this. All this light comes in one side. There's a giant mirror that collects it at one end. It reflects it back into a smaller scope. That's your focusing, your viewing scope. And this kind of sticks out on the side. And I was looking in that, and I was kind of zooming and looking at it. And uh, the whole time I was looking through, we were seeing these incredible things. And I was just so transfixed. The glory of God in the, he- in the heavens above is just a beautiful thing to behold. And so I was just glued to this, this little scope on the side of this giant tube. And after a while of just watching and, and beholding some of these beautiful stars, I, I noticed that the scope was starting to bump into me. And I, and I was like, what is this? And I, so I adjusted a little bit, and, and I'm looking, and everything is still perfectly centered in the scope, what I'm looking at. And after a few more minutes, it, it kind of bumped into me again. So I kind of, I kind of stepped back, and I'm, finally I just stopped. I said, what is going on here? And my father-in-law explained to me, the scope is tracking a wandering star through the sky. It's actually, it's actually a planet. It's not a star. And as it's tracking it, I've programmed it in, and it, it has to shift. It has to move to follow this thing across the horizon. And so the scope was very subtly moving, but when you're looking at this thing, you know, billions of light years away or whatever the distance is, you know, you can't notice that it's moving. It's just these gradual, subtle shifts of of movement. And I just thought that that was incredible. I'm watching a star or a planet that is far, far away, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles away. And this scope is bumping me, pushing me, so it can keep focusing in on this thing. And I didn't realize it then because of how subtle it was. But in order for me to focus in on that wandering planet, that wandering star, this scope had to shift ever so slightly. And of course, right here next to me, that shift was minor. It was imperceptible. It was so subtle, I wouldn't have noticed it. But it has to do that in order to track a wandering planet 
that is light years upon light years distant from the earth that is shooting across the sky. Now, the reason why I start there this morning is because what I want you to understand, what is true in astronomy is equally true for you and me spiritually. What we follow, what we focus on, as we gaze upon it, will gradually but subtly, yet definitely, move us. That's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Before we jump into the text, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of ways that this is clearly true. For my generation, not so much for the current generation that's in high school, but for my generation, the millennial generation, as we were coming up through school, as we were uh, in high school, our parents said to us, here is what you need to do. You need to get good grades in high school. You need to get involved. You need to get good grades in high school so you can be enrolled, accepted at a good university where you can get a good college degree. You get that university diploma. And then then you go out and you get a good job and you, you meet a lady and you get married and you have kids and you raise a family. And that is the secret to the happy and fulfilled life. That's what we might call the family life, the life that is pursuing family. And so there are certain goals that you're striving for at every single step along the way. The ultimate goal, the thing you're looking for is a, a beautiful wife to settle down with, with some kids along the way. But in order to get that goal, you've got to attain to certain other goals. Get a good education, get a good job, so forth and so on. The focus is family, but there are these little steps you have to take in order to get there. Today's generation, more and more, increasingly we see that they are pursuing what might be referred to as the wanderlust life. Getting a good education, sort of, kind of, but not really. What we really want to do upon completion of high school is we want to travel, we want to have experiences, we want to see the world, we want to immerse ourselves in different cultures. And so as you look at these individuals and you begin to identify the different goals, the different things that they're reaching for, they're looking to get experience in terms of traveling. Getting a passport is definitely on their to-do list. It's one of their items that they have to check off. They're not looking to acquire a great number of possessions. They're looking to live as minimalist as possible. Children are viewed as an obstacle to traveling. A wife would be nice, but she is merely an accessory, someone that you can share these experiences with. And so as we look at the different ways that people focus in on different things, we see that their focus begins to reinterpret how they view those around them, whether it be their wife or the potential or possibility of having children. Of course, and then there's another one, which might be more applicable to an older generation, the career life. This is where ambition takes center stage. Climbing the corporate ladder is the agenda. The goal here is to get a good education for the purposes of getting a high-paying, high-stakes job where there is power or influence to be gained through climbing up through those ranks. When this is your focus, when this is what you are zeroed in on, Wife becomes more or less a tool, someone to cook for you, do the laundry, manage the household so that you can invest lots of time into your career. 
And children may be viewed as something that are necessary in order to placate your wife's desires as she is managing the homestead while you're away at work. As we look at these different focuses, as we look at these different goals, these different agendas, everything around, depending on what you're focusing on, takes on a different perspective within that driving, overarching focus. And as we come to this particular passage, I want you to see that Paul is trying to bring into focus for you and me individuals who had the wrong focus and as a result drifted from Christ. We pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul makes the statement, he says, Now the Spirit expressly or explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teaching of demons. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here, where it says the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, notice this word, deceitful spirits. A Greek word there is planes. It means seductive. It means alluring or tempting, but ultimately false. Do you know what English word we get from planes? Planet. Planet is the word that we get from planes. It is a Roman sailing term. Sailors would go out into their ships in the ocean in the middle of the Mediterranean as they're going across the seas and as they're attempting to navigate, they would navigate by the stars. And so they would try to find a fixed star, a true north star, and they would attempt to plot their course through the oceans based upon a fixed star. And the worst thing you could do would be to mistake a fixed star for a wandering planet because a wandering planet is going to shift you, it's going to nudge you, It's going to draw you off course. The idea that Paul has here when he makes this statement, he says that there are people who are going to wander away from the faith. How exactly does this work? Number one, they give themselves over to planes. Depending on the translation that you're reading, it's going to say either deceptive or seductive demons. This is demons who are attempting to allure you, to seduce you away from from Christ. That's the first thing that he says. He says that there are seducing spirits. And and that's really what I want you to understand. It's subtle. The demonic capture of your attention is never overt. Nobody just wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? I've been worshiping Jesus all the time, all this time. I think what I'm going to do today is I'm I'm just going to give Satan a try. Nobody does that. You laugh because it's ridiculous. Of course, nobody's just going to wake up after, after having attended church, having come to First Baptist and having worshipped on a regular basis and just wake up one morning and say, yeah, Jesus is pretty good, but hey, that guy with the pitchfork and the red tail and the forked tongue, hey, let's give him a try and see what happens. That never is the case of it. It's always way, way more seductive. And here's the other thing you need to no- notice. Satan doesn't need you to worship him in the way that we are called to worship Jesus. He doesn't need that. Sufficient for his purposes is simply that you take your focus off of Christ. This is the nature of seduction. The goal of seduction, as we're thinking about the term in its pure context, referring to impurity or sexual infidelity, 
The nature of seduction is always this. You never walk up and just propose to someone, hey, you want to go and sleep with me? There is an art form to it. It's a series of small, imperceptible steps. An individual has a goal in mind, an impure, wrong, sinful goal, but he knows that an outright, overt suggestion won't always work. It's going to require subtlety. It's going to require a bait and switch. You offer friendship. You offer perhaps a friendly night out, dinner. And gradually you begin to twist the screws. You begin to turn the situation around. You begin to make subtle little suggestions. What starts off as a friendly dinner becomes a little something more. Perhaps a conversation on the phone. Perhaps a back and forth email message through Facebook. And before you know it, after a series of gradual, subtle, almost imperceptible steps, as you've been nudged and nudged and nudged and nudged along, next thing you know, you're in the act. That's the description that Paul is giving here in 1 Timothy. Nobody wakes up and says, hey, Jesus was great. Let's try Satan and see what that's like. That's never the case. People have wandered away from Christ, never with the focus in their mind that they want to wander away from Christ. It is always a gradual series of seductions. They have drifted, Paul says explicitly, by giving themselves over to seducing spirits. He goes a little bit further in case you're wondering who these seducing spirits are, what the power behind these seducing spirits is. He says they've given themselves over, they've devoted themselves to seducing or deceitful spirits to the teaching of demons. This is demonic activity. And we have a hard time with that. Particularly here in our 21st century, Western, technologically advanced, scientifically knowledgeable culture. We think we can measure everything. We can put everything on the scale. There is an empirical model for looking at the world around us. We can measure it. We can quantify it. We can calculate it. We have largely ignored and abandoned the reality that there is more to this world than that which we can touch, taste, see, and smell. There is a spiritual dimension. There are angels and there are demons. In the same way that there is a God in heaven who loves you, there is a dark, fallen, angelic force that hates you. And of course, hating you the way they do, they know it will never work for them to just approach you and say, hey, I hate you. You want to walk along with me for a while and see what happens? Again, that's not how demons work. There's a seduction to it. But we tend to struggle with this. We tend to dismiss certain things as being nothing more than mental health. We tend to look at certain phenomena and we tend to reduce it down to just a series of unusual occurrences. We never pause to reflect on the truth that in the the same way there's a God who is working through his spirit to draw people to faith, there is Satan, a lesser being, not as powerful, but definitely way more clever and way more intelligent than you or I that is working through an association of demonic angels. In the same way that God loves you and wants to bring blessing into your life, he wants to destroy you. God has to bring blessing into your life through securing your worship. All he has to do is get you to worship anything else in order to destroy you. This is what is being talked about here by the Apostle Paul. Now, it's interesting because Jesus touches on this theme as well. 
In the Gospel of John, don't flip there, just listen. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having this encounter with the Jews. And the passage starts off, he's in the temple, they're discussing, they're dialoguing. And the Jews are basically saying to Jesus that they don't believe that he's the Son of God. They're they're questioning his his lineage. They're suggesting that he was born of an illegitimate union. They're they're suggesting that he's a Samaritan, that he's not truly Jewish. And and they're, they're attacking him. And Jesus and them are going back and forth. And Jesus is dialoguing with them. And he's saying, if you truly were sons of Abraham, as you claim yourself to be and deny that I am, if you truly were sons of Abraham, you would be doing what Abraham did, which is following God. And Jesus goes on to say, I am the one that Abraham was looking for. And again, they continue to doubt that. And they say, no, 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 you're not, you're not a true Jew. We're true Jews. We're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus makes this statement. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will, that is those things you desire and you choose to pursue, your will is to do your father's desires. Now he's just said, your father's the devil and you want to do what he wants you to do. He goes on to say, he, referencing Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. He is the father of lies. So we see Jesus very clearly presenting this dichotomy between truth and lie, between life and death, between associating yourself with the one true God versus associating yourself with anything else, which is ultimately a giving of yourself over to Satan, participating in lies, participating in deception, which is contributing to the destruction of our our world and the destruction of your own soul. Those are the starkest terms that Jesus could put this in. This isn't like there's a gray middle ground. It is black and it is absolutely white. And you're on one side or you're on the other. And what's interesting, if you go back and you look at this passage in John chapter 8, it starts off in verse 31. Jesus was speaking to some of the Jews who had believed in him. These were people who had said, you know what, we like this guy. And they had taken steps, initial steps of discipleship. They had begun to follow him. And by the end of this account in John chapter 8, when Jesus is talking to them, they say, we're of our father Abraham. Jesus makes this powerful statement. He says, before Abraham was, I am. An incredible, unmistakable reference to the Exodus account in which Moses meets Yahweh or Elohim at the burning bush. And Moses' statement, when Pharaoh says, who sent me? What do I tell him? And God says to Moses, say, I am that I am sent you. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples, before Abraham, before you, before any of this, I am. And they pick up rocks in order to stone him. This passage here in 1 Timothy 4 when it says, some will depart, apostasante. Do you know what English word we get from that? Apostasy. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is addressing Jews who had believed in him. In John chapter 8, he tells them that he is the truth, that they are of their father, the devil, who is a murderer. And their response to that is to get so enraged that they pick up rocks 
in order to murder Jesus. It's ironic. I think you have an anger problem. <laughs> no, I don't. How dare you say that to me? Sorry, you're proving the point by your response. I think you're of the father, I think you're of your father, the devil, who's a liar, who's a murderer, who destroys. No, we're not. If we were to step back out of the text for a second and try to understand this in contemporary terms, suppose I pose to you this question. Over the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years, last century or so, who is someone in world history that you can say beyond a shadow of a doubt was truly demonic and empowered by Satan? Somebody whispered it. I heard it just a second ago. Hitler. Absolutely. Hitler. Plunged the entire world into war, strove with all of his effort to kill and eradicate the Jewish people from off the European continent. This was a man who had a focus. This was a man who was set upon a particular goal. That goal led him to achieving certain miniature goals on his path as he's striving for the ultimate goal. If you were to ask Hitler today, if by some strange chance of historical occurrence he had been spared, he had been allowed to live, and we could have interviewed him 20, 30, 40 years after the fact, if you were to pose the question to Hitler, hey, Hitler, Adolf, do you worship Satan? Do you think for one second his response would be, oh, yes, actually, I do. I like Satan. No, absolutely not. Hitler doesn't start off with the goal to worship the dark prince. And yet, undeniably, to any person who's outside of that immediate situation, outside of Hitler's sphere of influence, looking at this, understanding it from a historical perspective, none of us can deny that through Hitler, through the Third Reich, through what Germany did, in Europe, in the 40s and the 30s, this was absolutely a man and a government that was bent on achieving satanic and demonic purposes. But if you were to ask him, hey, are you, are you worshiping Satan? Is that your goal? He would laugh at you and say, no, our goal is the betterment of human, humanity. Why is it that we're quick to say absolutely Hitler was driven by satanic and demonic purposes. But my friend Hank, he's just confused. Here's where it gets really pointed as we're looking at this text. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. We can look at a person like Hitler and say, absolutely, Hitler was focused on achieving demonic purposes But my friend Hank, he's not Hitler. In what sense do you mean that? In what sense do you arrive at this conclusion that Hank, who has apostatized, he has drifted from Christ, is not driven, in fact, by the same spiritual realities that drove Hitler? Perhaps his goal is different. Perhaps his focus is different. Perhaps he's thinking, what I want to do with my life is go golfing every Saturday and Sunday. Perhaps he's thinking, no, 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 I have to put in an 80, 100-hour work week every week in order to climb that corporate ladder. 
Perhaps their goals are not the same goals as Hitler. Undoubtedly, they're not thinking they're going to eradicate six million Jews from off the face of the earth. But does that necessarily mean they're not driven by the same spiritual realities? Paul's statement here is, for you and I to see this, look carefully at what he's saying. The Spirit expressly or explicitly says that in later times, this is from the time of Paul onward to today, in later times, some will apostatize. They will depart from the faith. They will turn their back on Jesus because they devoted themselves to the seduction, the seducing spirits who were offering forth demonic deception. Do you notice the drifters? Do you notice those who wander away from church, who wander away from Christ? When you ask them, why why did you leave? Or why did you walk away? When you pose that question, do you know the answer you'll get more often than not? Oh, I'm just busy. Nothing absolutely demonic about that. Or is there? I would just rather spend my Saturdays and my Sundays golfing. You see, I work hard all week long, and Sunday is like my day to do the laundry, so that's what I do on Sundays. No, this individual isn't attempting to commit mass genocide on a global scale, but they've been seduced nonetheless. They've been trapped by something that is false nonetheless. William Warner Wallace wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. It's an interesting book. He was a detective in Los Angeles with the Los Angeles Police Department, and uh, he made a profound statement. He, he was challenged by someone to consider whether or not Christianity was true. Now, here's a man who's living a good life. He has reached the top of his career in terms of his, uh, his uh, career with the Los Angeles Police Department. He's got four sons that he's raised up, and these are, are fine-looking young men who've married, who have children of their own. So he's got the family thing down. He's got the career thing down. Life is good. He's making good money. He's not poor. He's not impoverished. He owns a boat. He's going out to the lake on the weekends. He's living what you and I would consider the quintessential middle-class American-Canadian life. And somebody challenged him and said, the way that you go about investigating crimes, these cold cases where the evidence has sort of gone cold as a result of time and distance from when the actual event occurred, would you not take that discipline and apply it to this case of Christianity? To asking yourself the question of whether or not Jesus was true and whether or not the claims that he made about himself coming back from the dead, whether or not there was not any validity to that. And William Warner Wallace, he becomes a Christian. He becomes a Christian. And his response is this. I became a Christian not because I was looking for a better life. I became a Christian not because I felt like there was something missing from my life. I became a Christian because Jesus is true. Which means everything else, despite how good it was, despite how much I liked it, despite how fulfilled I thought my life was, ultimately everything else apart from Christ was false. Hear carefully what he's saying. 
with Jesus, we're either all in. He's either the focus of your life, which then reorients all of your other goals, all of your other dreams, or he's not. In which case, some other goal, some other focus, some other dream is seducing you to your ultimate destruction. Now you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, pastor, so what? You're preaching to the choir. We're all here. We're, it's Sunday, amen? We're worshiping the Lord. We're in the Lord's house. Where's the specific point of application for us? What, what are you driving at with all of this? I want you to see this passage in the context of the overarching letter. Look back at how this all started. I want you to just flip back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul begins his admonition to Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, and he makes this statement. He says, as I urged you when I was going on into Macedonia, stay at Ephesus, remain at Ephesus. Remember, when we looked at this sermon, like, uh, I don't know, seven or eight months ago now, that remain is in the imperative. This is the command. Stay. You've got to stay there in Ephesus. Why? And he says, in order that you may charge, that is to command, that is to give a military order to certain individuals not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which do nothing but to promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now he says, stay there in order to stop people from teaching what is false. And a little bit further on, he identifies these people by name. He calls them out. These are individuals that were undoubtedly known to the church at Ephesus. Drop down, tail end of chapter 1, verse 18. He reiterates this charge I give to you, or I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. We're in verse 14 now, and he says, by rejecting this, rejecting what? Faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, he says, some have shipwrecked their faith. Well, who are you talking about? Who are you you alluding to, Paul? Okay, let me spell it out for you. Very next verse. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So in the overarching scope of 1 Timothy, he's saying, here's what I want you to know first off. Stay there at Ephesus in order to keep people from teaching what is false. You know who they are, him and A.S. and Alexander, and you can look at their lives and you can see that by devoting themselves to that which was false, they've destroyed their lives. It's a shipwreck. And then we come here to verse 4, chapter 4, beg your pardon, verse 1. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, here's what the Spirit is saying. It's like Paul's way of saying, in case you haven't really picked up on what I've been telling you for the last three chapters, here's what the Spirit is saying. There will be seducing spirits who are advocating the teaching of demons. What is the point of all of that? In the context of 1 Timothy, what Paul is calling Timothy to do is to stop people from teaching what is seductive and false. To point out those individuals who've given themselves over to the seduction and made shipwreck of their lives in order that all the rest of God's people can see it clearly for what it is before warned and turn away. In chapter 4, look at verse 6, where we're headed in a few weeks' time. 
If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So I'm putting these things before you guys today. Here's the reality. This has been the reality for 2,000 years. There are demonic forces who don't need you to worship them in order to destroy you. They just need to seduce you with something that looks good, that looks tempting, but that ultimately is not Jesus Christ. You give yourself over to any of those things, your life will utterly end in destruction. You may be like Wallace, this cold case detective from L.A., who, uh, who lived a good life, who had a good family, who had a good job, was making good money, and you can sail through life completely content, and yet you will still ultimately perish and come to the reckoning. Destruction is inescapable, no matter how good it looks. And the warning that Paul has here is this. Notice it. See it. See it for what it is. Because he wants you to distinguish how you are to live your life in distinction, in difference, juxtaposed with how these people live their lives. A couple of quick points of application. Number one, as Paul writes to Timothy, the first thing he says, you stay at Ephesus in order that you can charge people not to teach false doctrine. If that was Timothy's job in the first century, well, that is no less our job here in the 21st century. It is a part of our responsibility as we uphold the gospel to be able to notice those churches and those individuals which are either devoting themselves to that which is false or advocating that which is false. And to suggest to those whom we encounter who are caught up in these deceptions that they are ultimately perishing not because what they're looking at looks bad, but because what they're focused upon is not Jesus. That's number one application. Paul makes this statement in Philippians 3, 1 through 3. He says, watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times he says, look for it, look for it, look for it. Are you looking for it. Do you see it? Paul's statement here is that the Spirit explicitly says this. That Greek word there for explicit means it was using words. The way that the, the Spirit operates, uh, in, in particular in the writing of Scripture, is a bit mysterious to us. We don't know exactly how the Spirit moved the authors of the Bible to put pen to paper to write it. But Paul's statement here to Timothy, who's pastoring the church at Ephesus, is to say the Spirit didn't utilize some mysterious process to make this known. He explicitly spoke this forth. Why would the Holy Spirit have to do that? You see, again, we look at the Spirit's leading in our lives, and we would all agree that there's always something a little bit mysterious to it, a little bit imperceptible. And for those of us who are really wrestling with the call of God in our life, we're not sure whether or not God is calling us to something. We're not sure he's leading us a certain way. And so we're tempted to question, is this God or is this just my own impulsive nature, my own restlessness? And Paul's statement to Timothy was, this was explicitly stated. 
You don't have to wonder like, oh, is that the Spirit or is that something else talking? I don't know. He's saying, no, this is the Spirit talking with words, making it explicit. Some will drift as a result of seduction. And elsewhere he says, look out for it. Okay? Point number one. Are you looking for it? Are you watching it? Point number two. Notice the shipwreck. In chapter 1, he says, Alexander and Jimenez, by giving themselves over to what is false, they have made shipwreck. They've destroyed their lives. Elsewhere in Ephesians, chapter 4, don't flip there, just listen. Paul uses this exact same uh, metaphor. He says that the reason that God gives pastors and apostles and prophets and saints and evangelists. The reason he gives these individuals is for the building up of the body of Christ, for the building up of the church, so that we will all attain, as he says, to the maturity of the faith, to the unity of the faith, to mature manhood into the fullness of Christ. And then he contrasts that. He says, no longer being blown about by every wind of doctrine, the way that a ship that's out of control would be blown. So number one, you're to look out for those who are teaching what is false. Number two, you're to be holding to those who teach what is true. You're to be holding to the word of God. You need to be pursuing the unity of the faith, growing into maturity. And number three, the way that you put all of this together In verse 6, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ, having been trained or nourished in the words of truth, in the words of the faith. You need to be nourished by Scripture. The best way you can identify a counterfeit is if you are very, very familiar with what is true. And the only way that you become very, very familiar with what is true is if you hunger for it if you long for it. It's awfully hard. You think of a a really satisfying, really nutritious meal. Perhaps some of you are thinking of steak and potatoes. That's what I always go to. Medium rare porterhouse, mmm, fantastic. Put your steak knife to it. You gotta kinda saw it just a little bit. It's tender, so it pulls apart, but you kinda have to cut into it a little bit. You put that in your mouth, mmm, explosion on your taste buds. What the false teachers are teaching is nothing but emptiness. And how can you be nourished by sinking your teeth into thin air? If you find yourself caught up in false teaching, it'll become apparent. Your faith is not growing. Your confidence in Jesus is not increasing. Your love for Scripture is diminishing. You find yourself sinking your teeth into thin air when you're pursuing those things you find interesting more than you're pursuing what your Father wants to say to you. The apostle, the author of Hebrews says that solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish good from evil. The only way we get there is if we chew on the scriptures. A story is told about a man who was wandering across the desert. 
He had been stranded in the desert, and he was wandering across the desert, hoping not to die. The sun was beating down on him. It was scorching hot, and he was just plowing ahead, hoping against hope that somehow, someway, he might encounter an oasis or, or a pool or a well somewhere along his journey. And he's walking, and he's walking, and he's just, the sun is beating down, and he senses that he's dehydrated. He senses that his life is starting to come out. It's starting to just ebb away, and he's in, he's in critical danger, getting dehydrated, becoming overheated in the blistering sun. And in the distance, he sees, and at first he thinks it's a mirage. He rubs his eyes. He sees what appears to be a bit of a palm tree. It looks like there might be something there, and he begins to press on. And as he gets there, lo and behold, in the middle of the desert, a true miracle of God meets him. He finds there a well. It's one of those old-fashioned pump handle-type wells And there's a jar sitting right next to the well full of water. It's got a cork in it. It's dusty. It's obviously been sitting there for a long time. With that jar is a note. He pulls out the note, and this is what the note says. To get all of the water that you need, take this jar of water, dump it into the well, in order to prime the pump. And then as you pump the handle, more water will come up. Now, this is the decision that's before you. Do we trust what the note says? Do we take all that we have to live off of all that means everything to us, all that we are believing can save our life, and do we dump it? Or do we take this little bottle of water that's been sitting here for who knows how long, and do we drink it? This desert wanderer traveler pops off the top. It's warm. It's been sitting in the sun. It smells funny. Does he drink it? and get a little bit of his thirst quenched? Or does he take it and dump it down the well? Bottle's covered in dust. It's obviously been sitting here a long time. The well's been sitting here a long time. Perhaps the inner workings of the well are so thoroughly dried out, so thoroughly damaged that at this point, it's not a sure bet whether or not you dump all that water down and you pump the handle, whether any water's coming up. You see the dilemma? get a little bit of my taste satisfied with this really, really hot, lukewarm water that's old, that's been sitting here forever? Or do I trust the note and dump the water down? God makes this statement through the prophet Jeremiah. My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of of living waters. And they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. As we come to this verse, and as we look at the verses that follow, the only way you can appreciate the truth of Jesus Christ and all that he is for you is if you will be willing to trust him and forsaking all the rest. My prayer for you as we come to a close this morning is that you will
not knowing the outcome of all of these momentous decisions, nevertheless, hope in Jesus and pour all that you have down that well, trusting that he will meet you there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning that you have given to us not to look after seductive spirits, not to pursue seductive things in life, not to be driven by demonic distractions. God, our prayer this morning as we come to the close of this worship service, as we look at what you're saying to us in your word, our prayer, God, is that you would open our eyes to see that all those things that we are seduced by, all of those things that draw our attention, our focus away from you, they ultimately don't satisfy, and tragically, they lead to our own destruction. I pray, God, that if there are any here today who are pursuing other goals besides the goal of walking with your son, I pray, God, that you would bring conviction, that you would call them back to a single-hearted devotion to Christ. Lord, we pray that your spirit would do that among us this morning. We ask that you would do these things by the precious and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.